up until this point in the book of Acts, everything has been pretty smooth sailing. It's been a pretty great story. The um, Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost, and all these people uh, were saved and brought into the community of faith. And it's this beautiful story of speaking in tongues, and um, this miraculous stuff is going on. And we read about Peter, and he's healing all kinds of people, it says. And the church is living together in unity. And it's this really just sort of beautiful, hippie story of let's all just get along you know, and then what happens is in the book of Acts is real life hits and real life hit a couple of weeks ago. So what happened was Peter, he went to the temple with John and they were going to pray and they heal this guy. And on the way to heal, I'm um, sorry, they heal the guy and uh, on the way to the temple. And this dude was some, this guy who had been sitting outside the temple for years and years. They said he was over 40 years old. So he's probably been sitting there 20 or 30 years begging for money. Everybody knew the guy that sits outside the temple. And Peter and John heal this guy. Peter heals this guy. And he's bouncing around and he's praising God and he's singing about Jesus. And this whole crowd starts to gather. And so Peter delivers this beautiful sermon and he, to the crowd that gathers. And right in the middle of his sermon, he's about to get to the good part. And what we read last week is they arrested him. And they didn't like just arrest him. Remember, the word was like, they jumped them. They jumped him. They dragged him off to jail. They left him overnight. The next day, they took him to the Sanhedrin, which was like the high, the, high, the Supreme Court, the Congress, the president, right? the whole government of, you know, the people of Israel in one place. And they set him in the midst of the Supreme Court kind of thing. And they tried to intimidate him, you know. Who told you, whose name did you heal this guy in? And Peter goes, are you asking me, am I on trial for healing a guy? Because that's kind of weird, you know. And then they press him even harder, and he gives a whole speech. Okay, you want to know who healed him? It was Jesus, by the way, you idiots. The guy you crucified, do you remember that? And uh, they get real mad, and they threaten him, and they want to punish him. And Peter, it says, is filled with the Holy Spirit. And Peter and John, they have this boldness. And the Sanhedrin, they say they recognize they had been with Jesus, and yeah, so anyway, they want to punish him, but they can't because everybody's outside praising God because the dude that everybody knows is now bouncing around and has been healed. And so they threaten him and they say, you talk any more about this Jesus guy, you're going to get it. And Peter goes, yeah, okay. I'm, this is all the paraphrase. Yeah, all right, dude, because God told us to tell people about Jesus and you're an idiot and you're telling us not to. What, what do you think we're going to do? And then they leave. And so they further threaten them and then they let them go. And that was the end of the text from last week. So we're going to pick that text up today and we're going to read about what happens when the believers gather together and they pray. But before we do that, we need to set the stage by reading three kind of long verses. So what I did was originally, I had these verses in the middle of the like sermon outline, and then I decided, you know what, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to front load them all. We're going to read these three, and then you'll see how they pop up in our text. So the first one is this, Jesus promised his disciples that they would face persecution. So the phase of moving from the Kumbaya church sitting around, singing around the campfire, eating s'mores, and everything's going well, to the phase of persecution is exactly what Jesus told them would happen. Look at this. This is in John. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you're not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. And if they kept my word, they would also keep yours. But all these things they will do to you on account of my name. So they're going to persecute you. They're going to do all this stuff because they hate me. That's what Jesus is telling them. 
because they do not know him who sent me. If I had not come and spoken the truth to them, they would not have been guilty of sin. But now they have no excuse for their sin. Whoever hates me hates the Father also. If I had not done among them the works that no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen and hated both me and the Father. But the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without cause. But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, he will bear witness about me. And you will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. So basically, Jesus pulls his disciples aside and he says, look, guys, here's the thing. He says that because I always say that. That's probably why he says it. He goes, here's the thing, guys. They hate me and I'm way better than you. And so if they hate me and I'm way better than you and you're just my disciples, of course, they're going to hate you as well. So be ready. He's telling them to be ready. But when that happens, I'm going to send you guys the Holy Spirit. In another spot in John, he tells them, and when they persecute you and do all this stuff, the Holy Spirit's going to give you the words to say. And that's what happens when Peter stands in front of the Sanhedrin. I'm filled with the Spirit. He's filled with the Spirit. He's like, you dummies crucified Jesus. How dare you? You know, like he gets real bold with them. Okay, so that's the first passage. Jesus promised that what we're about to read was going to happen. The second passage we're going to read is a famous passage that actually throw, uh, shows up, this story shows up three times in the Bible. So when a story is repeated in the Bible, it's important. That, but when it's three times, it's like, whoa, this is a really important story. Now let me give you the background here. So it shows up in Kings Chronicles, and it shows up in the book of Isaiah. There was a king, his name was Hezekiah. Uh, when I want to mess with people, by the way, I always tell them to look up something in the book of First Hezekiah, because it sounds like that might be a book if you don't really know all the books, you know? <laughs> so feel free to use that one. Anyway, so there was a king, uh, and his name was Hezekiah. And the Assyrians showed up at Jerusalem to siege the city. And they were a bunch of real turkeys. And the, um, the king's name, or the leader of the Assyrian uh, army, his name was this guy, uh, Sennacheribs. And if, uh, Sennacherib. And you can remember that because he snacks on ribs. That's what I used to say with the youth group when we did kings. That's how you remember. Snacks on ribs. So snacks on ribs. He shows up, and he's got his whole army outside. And he sends his messenger, and they're yelling at the wall, my God is better than your God. We're going to defeat all these guys. And they have this massive army, and Hezekiah basically realizes he's the king of the people of God, and he realizes, I have absolutely no chance to win this battle. We are about to get steamrolled here. And so what he does, he goes into the house of God, he gets on his knees, he falls on his face, and he prays, and God answers his prayer, and the angel of the Lord comes through and kills 185,000 of the Assyrian soldiers. And the next morning, all the people of Israel wake up, and they go outside, of Jerusalem, and the dead bodies are everywhere, and they're all free, and they're saved from this invading army. Now, the important part of that story is not the whole story. We don't need the details right now. What we need is Hezekiah realized, I have no chance. And so what he did was he went into the temple, and he prayed this very famous prayer. I want to read to you that prayer now. So this is the version from Isaiah. There's three different versions of this, and they're all, they all pilfered from each other, but I just picked one. Anyway, Hezekiah received the letter from the hand of the messengers that says, I'm going to kill every one of you. Um, from the Assyrians, and he read it. And Hezekiah went up to the house of the Lord, and he spread it before the Lord. And Hezekiah prayed to the Lord, O Lord of hosts, God of Israel, enthroned above the cherubim, you are the God, you alone, of all the kingdoms of the earth. You have made the heavens and the earth. So he says, this God, this is who you are. Now, what does he ask from God? Incline your ear, O Lord, and hear. Open your eyes, O Lord, and see. 
and hear all the words of snacks on ribs, which he has sent to mock the living God. We're okay to make fun of this guy because the Bible doesn't like him very much. Okay. Um, Truly, O Lord, the kings of Assyria have laid waste all the nations and their lands and have cast their gods into the fire, for they were no gods but the work of men's hands, wood and stone. Therefore, they were destroyed. So now, Lord... So now, O Lord, or Yahweh, our God, so he uses God's name, Yahweh, our God, save us from his hand that all the kingdoms of the earth may know that you alone are Yahweh, that you alone are the real God, like he uses his name. Okay, so that prayer is so ingrained into the people of God in Acts 2 that when we pray, it's going to sound exactly like that. When they pray, it sounds exactly like this. It's kind of cool. So I wanted to give you the background here. Now, the third passage you have to get background before we jump into our passage uh, is Psalm 2. You guys know Psalm 2? So uh, in the prayer that we're about to read, they actually quote part of Psalm 2, but I want to read the whole psalm to give you the context. Okay, so this is a royal psalm. It says, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying... Let us burst their bonds and cast away their... That's hard for me to say in the ESV, by the way, because do you guys know Handel's Messiah? Let us burst their bonds asunder. That's from... Anyway. Let us burst their bonds apart, not asunder like in the Messiah, and cast away their cords from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. Then he will speak to them in his wrath and terrify them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king in Zion, my holy hill... I will tell of the decree the Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. That's where that comes from in the Gospels. As of, uh, ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them into pieces like a potter's vessel. Boy, this just took a turn, didn't it? Now therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Okay, so this is Psalm 2. It goes like this. All these kings and these nations and these peoples, they fight against our God. And they don't believe in him and they don't trust him and they don't put faith in him. And they're in for a whooping. That's the two halves of this psalm, right? This is not going to go well for these guys. I want you to remember those two halves. Lord, these guys are after us, and now I need you to mollywop them, right? I need you to go to town, break their rods of iron, do all, you know, it's Old Testament, God, like, show up in your wrath. That's what the prayer is in Psalm chapter 2, uh, uh, Psalm 2. All right, so now that's our three texts, right? So we have Jesus promises persecution, we have the prayer of Isaiah, and we have Psalm 2. Now, let's jump into our text. Let's walk through uh, Acts chapter, we're in uh, 4. We're going to read, well, this says 23 through 27, but we're actually going to go all the way to 31 here. Uh, when they were released, so from jail, when the Sanhedrin told them, you guys, no more talking about Jesus. And they said, yeah, okay. And then they let him go. So when they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So... Um, I love that the first thing they do, and I love the wording here. This is, you guys know, we've talked about this word before, but you don't have to remember this. But the word is ecclesiology. Anybody know what that means? What's ecclesiology? Nope. Study of the church. Yeah. Um, I know what you're thinking of, but yeah, that's, anyway. Um, yeah, it's the study of the church. 
And when we do the study of the church, we have all these things like the body of Christ. And one of my favorite verses that explains the church that is never shows up in the books about ecclesiology is this one right here. They get released and they go to their friends. <laughs> we're supposed to be friends, you guys. <laughs> right? Like, we're not, you know, when you have like uh, the friends you like and then you have church people, that's not supposed to be a thing. <laughs> right? We're so united and so bonded by the gospel that like when we think of our friends, the first thing that should pop into our mind is these relationships right here. And that's what these guys do. They get released from prison and they don't go, oh, let me call, you know, my cousin or whatever. Let me, you know, first thing they do, let's go to my family, my friends, my buddies. And so they go and they give a report and they tell them the whole story. And Peter is like, and then I said, you killed Jesus. And then John was like, oh, tell him the part, tell him the part about, oh, yeah, 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 I forgot that part. And they're just real excited to tell him this whole story. And oh, dude, you should have seen the look on Caiaphas's face when they told him he couldn't crucify me. You know, I'm guessing that's how it went down. And so uh, they tell him the whole story. I'm guessing that they're pretty excited. Verse 24. And when they heard it, they lifted their voices together with God. So what is the gut-level response of this church of friends? They hear this story, and the story, if we're, I just made jokes about it, but it's actually pretty terrifying. Peter and John were two seconds away from actually getting crucified, or beheaded, or stoned like Stephen, or something, you know, something bad. And they tell him this story, and everybody in the church is probably shocked. And their gut-level response is not to run away. we got to get out of Jerusalem. It's not to plan. Okay, we got to get our people into the Sanhedrin. It's not to hunker down and stay safe. All right, nobody leaves the compound. It's pray. They go, we're in a Hezekiah-level situation here. We have no shot, and the Assyrians are at the door. So what do we do? What did Hezekiah do? They went and they prayed. Now, one thing here um, that's kind of interesting, too, is I say, I, I say this a lot. You don't usually need to know any Greek to understand the Bible, but there is a cool Greek thing right here that gets lost in translation. It says, uh, when they heard it, they lifted their voices together to God. But what that actually says in Greek, the reason they change it in English is it doesn't make a lot of sense if you read it the way it would be. But the way it should read is, and when they, when they heard it, plural, they lifted their voice together. It's actually singular. And that doesn't make a lot of sense in English, so they make it plural. But in Greek, that word is singular. And the idea is, this church is so united that they get together, they sit in a circle, and they pray with one voice. Right? So one guy prays, and everybody goes, that's me praying too. We're so united in what we're going to pray. And so what did they pray? This is what they said. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them. So just like Hezekiah's prayer... This prayer starts with who God is. I've said this before, but this is an important point. If you look at the pattern in Scripture, almost every prayer is mostly about who God is. And very little like our prayers. I think that's important. They always start, like in the Old Testament, you read these long prayers, and it always goes, you're the God who... You did the plagues, and then you saved us from Egypt, and you took us through, and then you gave us the promised land, and you did all this stuff, and now, by the way, just, hey, real quick, could you take care of the Assyrians? So there's this much about who God is, and this much about what we need from the God who is this guy. And I think what it does is it's reframing their hearts. And so who's the God? Who is it that they're praying to, that they need to be reframed and pointed back to? Look at what they say. First, he's sovereign. So he has, what that means is he has absolute control and absolute power. 
and I don't mean like mostly powerful. When we talk about the sovereignty of God, we're talking about an all-powerful God. Nothing happens outside of his control. And in the context, when they say, God, you are sovereign, what they're saying is, even over the Sanhedrin, who is a bunch of very scary dudes who could have us executed. But the ultimate power in that situation was not the Sanhedrin. It was our God. And, and then they say, you're also the creator, right? You're sovereign because you're the creator. You made all of this. Everything we see, God created. And this is how the Gospel of John opens. It's how the Bible opens. The, the creator God is important. That's how big he is. I've said this before. I'll say it again, and then I'm going to say it again in a couple of weeks. One of your very uh, frequent spiritual disciplines should be to go on YouTube and watch one of those videos that explains the math of how big the universe is. Right, So they start with Earth, and there's like a Google Maps of somebody's house, and then it zooms out, and then it zooms out, and you see the ring of like how big Earth is get smaller, you know, the ring of this is Earth, and it gets smaller as you zoom farther away, and then the solar system, and then the galaxy, and you're like, whoa, that's a huge galaxy, and then you're like, oh, wait, there's like trillions of galaxies, and it keeps zooming out, and then I sit there, and I go, sovereign Lord who made the heavens and the Earth and the sea and everything in them, whoa. Okay, the Sanhedrin didn't make anything, right? These enemies didn't make anything. This is who God is. But if you just start with, oh, God is big, and that's the end of it, he, all of a sudden he's a distant and unavailable God. But, so they go next. Who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit. So the next thing they do is they go, you're this huge God, you created everything, you're in absolute control, and... Thank goodness you speak to us. We talked about this in the How to Study the Bible class, so I'm not going to super harp on this, but this is one of the verses. We might have even read this during that class about how God inspires the Bible. See this? What he says is, who spoke? Um, it was David's mouth, and it was the Spirit speaking. Right. So when we open a Bible and we hold it in our hands, we can say two things. We can go, Luke says, because he wrote the book of Acts, Luke says this, and we'll be right, because Luke wrote this stuff down. But we can also say, God is speaking to me. God is saying this through these words. And so, with their Bibles open, they pray. This is such an important discipline. Um, we didn't get to this one yet in the house. Is that this week? The next one coming up is how praying the Bible, I think, and memorizing. Yeah, I don't think we did that one yet. So we'll talk about this, so maybe I won't beat this to death. But on Wednesday night in a few weeks, we'll get to this. But the idea is, we do this in church once a month, where we pick a psalm, and I just pray through the psalm. Right. This is basically what they're doing in this prayer. They go, David said through the whole, you know, the Holy Spirit said through David, here's this psalm we're about to read. So look at the psalm. It says, Why did the, the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. So sound familiar? That was Psalm 2 that we just read. And like I said, it was a royal psalm that expresses this idea, humanity is rebellious and will always uh, buck against the authority of God. Um, but God, in those situations, will always be victorious. And uh, I want to say something too here. It's important to note that when we read this prayer here, that whoever was actually praying this prayer, we don't know how this worked, because it says they got together and they prayed with one voice. So we don't know if this was five people going back and forth praying this was probably Peter or John or one of the apostles. Uh, Nathaniel, 
He never gets any credit. I don't know. Maybe it was him. And uh, he was praying, and everybody else was agreeing with it. But whoever was actually saying these words out loud, it's important to notice something. He knew this psalm well enough to go, that scripture speaks to what we're, we're dealing with right now. Uh, this is why we spend so much time in the scriptures together. I want to beat you guys to death with the Bible is basically like my ministry philosophy. I'm going to hammer you with the Bible over and over and over again, and you're going to get so sick of it. And you're going to be like, why does John just constantly read us a text and then say the same thing at the end of every sermon about the gospel and that the gospel is about grace? And, you know, we go, we basically do the same sermon every week. Why does he keep doing this? And because what's going to happen is you're going to hear it over and over again till you get sick of it and you get sick of me and then your life is going to fall apart. And in the moment that your life falls apart, what's going to bubble to the surface is the same thing that I say at the end of every week. And then you're going to remember some scripture and it's going to pop to your head. You're going to go, oh, that thing we read in Ephesians. This is exactly what I'm dealing with now. That's what happened here. And they knew it well enough to pray it out loud. I wonder if they had a scroll with him and somebody read it. I'm guessing these guys were way more into memorizing the Bible than we are. And this quote is actually um, exactly the quote from the Septuagint, that Greek translation. So, they, I mean, they did it exactly, right? So they're praying it, and they're saying, just like in Psalm 2, these wicked leaders are against the people of God. Look at us now. These wicked leaders are against the people of God. And so he keeps going. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your servant, your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. And so what he says next is, Psalm 2 can be interpreted just like that. Look at we have these same kind of guys here. And he lists them out. You've got Herod and Pontius Pilate, the guys who all killed Jesus, basically, is what he's saying. So we have Gentiles, we have Jewish people, we have these couple of leaders. It's like they're probably going, it's just like Psalm 2. And it's actually really interesting. I found this chart. Can you guys see the chart? Did it show up? Yeah, there we go. That's, um, look at this. The, the symmetry between their prayer, this is how ingrained the scripture was in their prayer, right? In Psalm 2, um, when, they're, when they're interpreting Psalm 2 in their situation, in Psalm 2, it's the nations. Here, it's the Gentiles, which means nations. In Psalm 2, it's the peoples. They plot in vain. In Acts 4, it's the people of Israel. The rulers and kings, Herod and Pontius Pilate of the earth. And they, they shorten it here. They go, it's here, it's just the city. And then they're against the Lord, they reinterpret Lord as your holy servant Jesus and his anointed one, whom you anointed. So this is very um, scriptural, this prayer, what they're doing. They're interpreting their situation in light of scripture, and they keep going. So they're saying all these guys got together to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is one of the most important verses in the Bible, I think. This is right up there. Um, Everything that happened to Jesus was all part of God's plan. His sovereign control extends even over sin. The worst sin in the history of the world was killing Jesus. So it extends even over the worst sin in the world. And look how strong the wording is. First, he says that whatever happens, not just a few things that have happened, anything that happens is in God's control. The ESV study Bible has this note. It says, whatever that word whatever includes all the evil rejection, the false accusation, the miscarriage of justice, the wrongful beatings, the mockery, the crucifixion that both the Jews and the Gentiles poured out against Jesus. He uses that word to say, I, I want you to think of a situation that you think maybe God's not in control of that. 
And then look at what the Bible says, is he's absolutely even in control of that thing that you really uh, don't want to believe he's in control of. And he uses the strongest words. He says, it's your plan, and he uses the word predestination. It's the strongest way to say something was not an accident. Not only did God plan it, he carried it out in the way that it happened. And so from eternity past, all of this sin that these people committed against Jesus and killed him was all part of God's predestination and part of his plan. And the implication there, why pray this though? Why talk about this in a prayer? Is because what they're saying is that was the worst thing that ever happened, and it was in God's control. The thing that's happening to us is not as bad. So of course, this is also in God's control. And in this prayer, what they're doing is they're psyching themselves up to believe what they know to be true. Does that make sense? They're saying, oh yeah, with Jesus this happened, and so in a lesser degree, we can have confidence that God is still absolutely um, in control. And so next, though, so they've done all this. This is who God is. He's in control. He's the creator. He's sovereign, right? He's this amazing God who inspired the scriptures, and he speaks to us. And now they get to the part where they ask God for something. And when they had prayed, the place—oh, wait, sorry, I missed one. I wasn't supposed to go forward. Uh, Verse 29, And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. This is why I think, I don't know, you push me. I think this is probably the coolest prayer in the Bible. Every time I try to teach about prayer, this is the passage I use. The reason is because I love the pattern. Let's talk about who God is for like a really long time, and then let's get to the part where we ask him for something. And what do they ask him for? First thing, look on their threats. This is where the, this is where, this whole section here is where um, their prayer leaves Psalm 2 behind. So at the beginning, they say the situation that's like Psalm 2, these guys are against us. And then they take all the teaching of Jesus, and they look at the end of Psalm 2, right, where it says, crush them with a rod of iron and all this stuff. And they go, but Jesus told us to love our enemies. And Jesus reinterpreted all of those Old Testament passages to show us that actually we're the enemy, we're the bad guy that those passages are talking about. And so instead of crush them with a rod of iron, they say, Lord... Just make sure you're watching what's happening here. And then the second thing they pray for is, and grant your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. Let us keep doing what we've been doing and preaching the gospel and seeing people come to faith. Now, why would they ask for that? Because they were afraid and they were tempted to not do that. Okay? This is a real situation where there are some real guys shaking in their boots. Let's not minimize the situation. This is the beginning This is the first instance of persecution that would eventually spread throughout the whole early church. And people were, look at at the history, people were burned alive, they were fed to bears and lions, they were crucified, they were speared, they were baked alive, they were tortured and mutilated and had body parts cut off and forced to um, turn in, like watch family members be tortured and stuff like that. Like it really was a brutal persecution and this was the start of it. And it went on for hundreds of years, really. I mean, and persecution is still happening. But the reason that they're praying this is because they're afraid that when they get in that situation next time, they're going to cower and they're going to they're gonna, uh, give in. And they're afraid because they know there are sinful hearts and they're afraid that that's what's going to happen. And so what they do is they pray, Lord, the deepest desire of my heart is not safety. It's not revenge. That would be mine. 
Lord, get them. Right, that's what I'd probably pray for. It's not pride. Lord, being arrested like that was humiliating. I was in front of the whole crowd, and now everybody thinks we're a bunch of turkeys. Restore our reputation. That's not what they prayed. They prayed for love. They prayed, Lord, help us to spread the gospel. And I bet that if Caiaphas had come into their meeting and go, you know what, actually, guys, I believe. Like the guy who killed Jesus. Peter would have been like, great, grab a chair. Let me teach you about communion. You want to get baptized, right? Because they were gen- their genuine, deepest desire of their heart was what Jesus had taught them to do, to love their enemies. And then they make a third request as well that kind of goes along with it. And when they had, oh wait, no, sorry, I did it again. Um, verse 30, while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through your name, through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. So they pray for more signs and wonders. We have to stop and ask, why did they pray for that in this instance? So, Lord, look at their threats is the first thing. The second thing is, Lord, give us boldness to keep speaking the truth. And the third thing is, and while you're, you know, working here, would you keep healing people? And the reason that they prayed this was probably not because they liked the magic show. Because Jesus was constantly trying to avoid being a freak show. You know, that's not what he was doing. Why did they keep praying for healing? Because every time they healed people... A bunch of people saw it and came to faith. It was one of the avenues that God used in a, in a concentrated area in the early church to bring people into this new movement. And so what they're really praying for when they ask God to heal is not, it's really fun when I heal somebody and everybody goes, whoa, how'd you do that? That's not what they're praying for. What they're praying for is more people to come to faith. So give us boldness and keep bringing people to faith. Amen. That's the end of the prayer. They don't say amen there, but we can imagine. Everybody goes, whoa, that was a good prayer. And then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they continued to speak the word of God with boldness. So they asked God, give us boldness, keep healing people, and listen to these threats. Amen. And then all of a sudden, there's an earthquake. Now, let's be real. This is super cool. And I always make the joke about, amen, and then there's no earthquake. <laughs> now, um, this is the only time in Scripture that something like this ever happens. And do you remember when we started the book of Acts, one of the things I said was we need to ask ourselves, is this descriptive or prescriptive? Like, is this just something that happened once? Or is this something that's supposed to happen every time? And if we look at this and go, well, it probably happened because they have more faith than we have. And then I look at the text, and that's not what it says. It doesn't say that this is supposed to happen every time the church gets together and prays. You know what's been happening for 2,000 years now? The church has been getting together and praying. And you know how many times there was an earthquake after the prayer as a sign of God going, hey, I heard that prayer? Once. It's not supposed, this is not like a normal church thing, right? So let's not feel bad or feel like lesser believers because there's no earthquake. Let's just look at this and go, these guys were in serious danger, and I bet that was a crazy weird, awe-inspiring moment that gave them a lot of comfort when the dust settled and they realized nobody died from the earthquake. And we know that it was comforting and we know that this prayer was answered because Luke gives us an editorial note, is they were filled with the Spirit again. These are all the same guys that just got filled with the Spirit before, and then Peter and John filled with the Spirit, and now they're filled with the Spirit again. Um, uh, It's... The verb there in Greek, when it keeps talking about being filled with the Spirit, it means sort of like it's a process. Filled with the Spirit over and over and over again. 
This is not the Pentecostal, you have a one-time, I mean, I don't want to rag on Pentecostals, but a lot of Pentecostals will believe you have a one-time experience of the Holy Spirit that happens after you're saved, and it happens once, and then you have that for life. And then you read the Bible, and it's like, well, this is the third or fourth time we've said that Peter's been filled with the Spirit. This is an ongoing process where you're surrendering your life to God, filled with the Spirit, and then Luke gives us the editorial note. They continue to speak the Word of God with boldness, and that's what will play out in the rest of the book of Acts. Did they speak the word of God with boldness? Yeah. Look at Stephen, who's coming up. He's about to give a speech before the same Sanhedrin, except they're going to kill him at the end of his speech. And look at Peter in front of Cornelius and those guys. And you'll, We'll get there. And look at Philip and the Ethiopian eunuch. And look at Paul and Barnabas and Silas and John Mark. And all these guys are going to spread out all over the world, and they're going to continue to speak the word of God with boldness. So that's our text. That's where we're going to end. Now, what I want to do to close is I want to think about the way we pray. Think about how you pray when you go home and you open your journal and your Bible and you get your chai latte or whatever in the morning, I don't know, and you look out your window and the birds are chirping and you're praying and you say, Dear Lord, please make my life easier. Isn't that what we do, more or less? Dear Lord, here's this thing I'm struggling with. Can you just do that for me? (laughs) Most of our prayers... Okay, uh, how do I put this delicately? Our garbage. No, not really. But a lot of... Okay, so we're sinful people. We've been redeemed and we're being made new, but that sin nature is still there and it's still gnawing at us. And I bet it shows up a lot of times when we're praying as well. And we pray for things, not with a kingdom mindset, but with a me mindset. And that self-centered, I'm the center of the world mindset, that was the first sin of Adam and Eve. They said, I don't want God to be at the center. I want to be at the center. And now that God's redeemed us, we go to him in prayer and we go, hey, by the way, do you remember how I'm at the, in the middle? I need you, Lord, to be the assistant manager of my life. It's not a great look. And so what we need is the, the, the gospel to hit us like a freight train. The death of Christ, we remember, was the plan all along. And that plan redeems us and it makes us into new people. And it brings all different kinds of new people together. And then those new people, like those newly remade, new heart kind of people, we all get in a room together, and we have new priorities, and we have rewired hearts. And so what I want to do is I want to say three, yep, three things. Who's proud of me? Three things? Come on, that should get a round of applause. It's not even 17 things, you guys. It's the Super Bowl. (laughs) I want to say three things real quick about what gospel prayer looks like when the church gets together and prays, when we pray on our own with a kingdom mindset. Okay, here's the first one. Gospel prayer unites the church. They prayed with one voice. That might be the coolest part of this passage that's so easy to just skip over. Part of prayer, like I said, is about turning your own sinful heart away from yourself and towards God and saying, my gaze needs to be on somebody who's worth looking at. And so you do that, and you look at God, and then you're in the prayer meeting at church, and you look over here, and you look at somebody who is also taking their sinful gaze and turning it towards the holiness of God. And you go, hey, wait, that's cool. He's doing the same thing I'm doing. And then you look over here, and she's doing it too. And you look around the prayer meeting, and it's a whole group of people who are saying, I'm not the center of this at all. God is. And when that happens... When you have that experience together, it binds you together in a way nothing else will. One of my favorite um, 
uh, mini series kind of things is the show Band of Brothers. Do you guys remember the show? Anybody seen Band of Brothers? It is excellent. But one of the, like, it's about the paratroopers who landed on D-Day and they spent a couple of years together fighting in Europe in 1944 and 45. And it is, the show is brutal because what those guys went through was something else. And they were stuck in the snow, freezing to death in Bastogne. And the ones who made it through, they have a bond and that's why it's called Band of Brothers. And that when you see those guys in real life talking about each other, it you see a unity and you see a bond that you go, those guys went to war together, right? Those guys have been through it. They have this deep experience that the rest of us have not experienced. Now, the same is true with church and prayer. And I'm, I mean, I guess we could do a whole thing on spiritual warfare, but that's not what we're talking about. We haven't been to war together. We're not seeing legs blown off and all, you know, like, but what we are doing is something that is so powerful together that that experience of sitting next to somebody and saying, look at him, he's looking at Jesus. Look at her, she's looking at Jesus. That's what I'm trying to do. That glues us together. That binds us together in a way that nothing else will. An outsider should look at us the way I look at Band of Brothers guys and go, why are those guys so tight? They're friends, but they're more than friends. They're family, right? So first is gospel prayer. When we really pray like these guys did, it unites the church. The second thing is gospel prayer. It's about the kingdom, so like I said earlier, the temptation is to pray selfishly, but the goal is with God rewiring our hearts, when we show up at church every week and we take communion and we remember, oh yeah, I'm not the center of the world, Jesus is. I'm not even the center of my own story, Jesus is. I'm not the one who earned my salvation, Jesus did that for me. I'm not the one who has wisdom and knows all this stuff and brings peace into my own heart. That's what Jesus does for me. When we do that together, and we all sit here and we do that, the things we pray for change. We don't pray for selfish, inward-facing things. We pray for the kingdom. We pray, Lord, I don't care what it costs. I want to speak the word with boldness. I don't care how embarrassing it is, Lord. Give me the boldness to share the gospel with this Pabst Blue Ribbon person that I've been investing in. Right? I want to love my neighbor. And one of the ways... One of the ways out of selfish prayer and into kingdom prayer is to do what they did in our passage, which is read the scriptures when you pray. So when we do a prayer meeting, um, uh, we'll have Bibles and I'll print scriptures. I want to read scripture while we pray at our prayer meetings. That's one of the things we're going to do. Because I want us to be people who pray the scriptures. Because when you pray the scriptures, it's hard to read this prayer and then go, Lord, I need a raise. Or Lord, you know... I don't know, whatever, some stupid selfish prayer. Okay, so that's the third one. Second one. Third one, gospel prayer is desperate for the presence of God. I think this one is pretty self-explanatory. But at the core of this prayer that we see in Acts chapter, whatever this was for, um, we see them saying, God, you are amazing. And here's a bunch of amazing things about you. And so God, let us have so much more of you in our lives that when we're in those moments where we're tempted to forget you, help us to not forget you, right? Be louder in our hearts than the pain around us. That's what they're praying. Be closer than our fear. Be more real than our suffering. What they're really praying for here is that they have this desperate prayer, Lord, we need you 
to be stronger in our lives than the temptation to cower in the face of persecution. So this is three things that about gospel prayer. So how do we apply this passage then? These are kind of three general ideas. What do I want you to do? What should we be doing? Let me give you those things real quick, and then we're done. Four application ideas. You ready? The first is pray at 4 p.m. Okay? You guys remember this? Anybody still doing this besides me? Yep. I know Kathy does because every day at 4 o'clock, heaven goes, Grammy, pray for church, because <laughs> her alarm goes off at the house. Okay, so if you don't know what this is, here's what we did. We all set an alarm because our church usually meets at 4 p.m., except when the best team in the whole world is in the most important game of all time. Uh, we meet at 4 p.m. Today, it's a little earlier. But... Um, so every other day besides Sunday, and actually I forgot and I just said it for every day, and so every Sunday my phone goes off at four when we're supposed to be starting church and I'm standing outside talking to people, but all of our alarms go off at the same time and we know everybody else in church is going to spend 10 seconds praying for our church. Pray for more people, pray for me because I don't know what I'm doing, pray for you guys that you'll be united together, all that good stuff, right? Pray these kingdom prayers for our church. This does not have to be a, I'm pulling my car over wherever I am, I'm going to get on my hands and knees. Dear Jesus, please bless Grammy and please, you know, it's just phone goes off, shout out. Sometimes I just go, Lord, bless our church. And sometimes I say it in my head because I'm in the middle of a Zoom call or what, you know, alarm goes off. We pray for church at 4 p.m. Can we keep that going if you turned your alarms off? That's the first thing. Here's the second thing. Come to the prayer meetings. I know last time we did a prayer meeting in the middle of Hurricane Sandy or whatever it was called. Uh, <laughs> and so no, nobody came to the last prayer meeting because I know there's just a couple of us there and we had a great time and we prayed and it was really beautiful. And it's, I love the prayer meetings. We're going to do another one pretty soon. I'll let you know the day. Um, show up. You don't really have to show up super prepared. I'm going to have scriptures. We're going to have some songs to sing. Uh, we'll have some time to pray. We want to do more prayer meetings because we want to be a better praying church. We want to pray more as a church because of how it binds us together. Third thing is get that book when you come up to my house for the party today, or we'll have them. If you're not coming up to my house, we're going to have these next week as well. Um, it's, it's called Oh Sacred Head Now Wounded. It's like a liturgy to do every day, and it has some guided prayer and some stuff. They're really cool. So what I would like everybody to do is to commit to at least doing this book during Lent. So from Ash, Ash Wednesday into Holy Week, okay? So grab one of these books and follow the steps. Um, I'm going to explain in more detail as um, probably next week, so I know it starts this week, but... Um, I'll explain more next week what the book looks like. We don't have time for that today. All right. Uh, four is come to Ash Wednesday. So one of the things we're going to do on Ash Wednesday is we're going to spend some time in confession and prayer together with other churches. So we're not just talking about church. Prayer unites us as a church. It unites us with the other churches as well. So if you can make it to Ash Wednesday, these kind of events, we're going to do Monday, Thursday, Good Friday, where you know, we did Advent stuff together. Come to these joint events that we have with our sister churches. Um, and then the fifth one is the bonus. All right, I'm just kidding. All right, let's pray. <laughs> you could. He's a Niner fan probably, right? No? I'm getting a lot of people leaving the church right now. Okay, for the podcast, everybody's walking out. Okay, I'm just kidding. All right, here we go. Let's close in actual prayer. 